Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Jesus looked at them and said, For men this is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 26. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day and this opportunity to gather together to worship you as a church family. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us in a powerful way. I pray that you would send your angels to guard this building from the uh, distractions, from the plots of the enemy. And I pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts. Please open our hearts. Please uh, be with us as we hear Uh, the message that you've given. And Lord, I pray that you would be with me. You know that I'm insufficient for any of these tasks that you ask me to do, ask us to do. Lord, you know that uh, I can't do this. And I pray that you would give me strength. Please give me words. Please be my mouth, Lord. Um, We thank you so much, Lord, for the promises that you give and for, for knowing that you're a God who loves us and who, uh, delivers on the promises that you make, and I claim the promise of you being with me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, thank you, Abby, for reading. We're actually going to start there in Matthew 19, if you guys want to turn there. Most of the time is going to be spent in the Old Testament, but uh, when I was looking at the cross-references, this was one of the verses mentioned, and I thought, you know, it's, it's good to include words from Christ. I had been reading in John uh, not too long ago, and, you know, when Jesus is talking about him being the bread of life, um, he says that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. And then he makes it clear It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And so I think it's important for us to focus on Christ's words, too, in whatever we do. So I wanted to include a little bit of that. So I threw you off by reading from John, but we can go to Matthew again. So Matthew 19, the immediate context of this is the rich young ruler who Christ had given him an invitation to follow him, but had said uh, he wanted him to give away all that he had and, um, and to follow him. And we know the rich young ruler declined that. And Jesus told his disciples in 23, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were just blown away. And when they heard it, They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So he's talking about making that decision to give up ourselves and to follow him. He's talking about salvation. And we can't make that move of ourselves, right? I mean, we can't make any positive decision without divine inspiration. You know, our natures are selfish. Our natures just want, you know, to lift ourselves up. But Christ wants that to decline and for him to be lifted up within us. And that's a decision that we can't make in and of ourselves. 
And he says, with God, all things are possible. He's talking about this salvation, but it's, it's kind of a broad statement too. With God, all things are possible. You know, I'm sure we've heard this verse. Uh, it's a scripture song that I know Lucas listens to. And I, I feel like sometimes we hear this enough or we hear similar phrases that it becomes kind of cliche, right? I mean, you hear it so often and so often and so often. And, you know, anytime that you hear something repeatedly, it kind of loses meaning. So every time I log into my computer at work, I get this alert. Do you have these symptoms? You know, lightheadedness, dizziness, cough, all this stuff. I have to acknowledge, no, that I don't. And uh, a lot of times when I sign orders at work, I get these alerts that pop up every single time I sign orders. And you get to the point that I don't even, you know, just click, okay, whatever, click, click. Um, And I feel like that's kind of the same thing with anything. We hear it often enough, and sometimes it just kind of gets lost, and it just becomes words or, you know, loses all meaning. But I really want us to focus on this a little bit today. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Because this is a promise, and I think this is one of the main means that God demonstrates his power, not just to us as a church, but to the world, to the secular world. These are demonstrations of his power that all things are possible. People should be looking at us and seeing that in us. So I want us to keep that in mind as we uh, now go to the Old Testament. So let's go to 1 Samuel. And we'll start chapter 9. So we're going to be covering a little bit the initial time frame of Saul's reign as king. So you hear the name Saul and, you know, what comes to mind? You know, witchcraft, uh, trying to kill David, demonic possession. I mean, there's not a lot of good things that you think about when you think about Saul. But really, the first part of... uh, his rule, there's some very good examples that I think demonstrate what we just read. So to set the background, Israel had been ruled by God, right? There had been judges that had been raised up, Samuel being one of the last ones here, but Israel wasn't happy with that setup. Israel wanted a king, and they made that clear to Samuel. And unfortunately, you see that one of the things that they cited was the fact that Samuel had appointed his sons as judges after him. Now, Samuel's sons were not like Samuel. They didn't walk in his ways. Um, In verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And that was one of the pushes for um, the people to ask for a king as well. They cite Samuel's sons as being part of the problem. And then later on, they cite the fact that they just want to be like everyone else. In verse 20 of chapter 8, verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel when he had given them warnings about what a king would do. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they just kind of wanted to be like everybody else. So they ask for a king. And God concedes. He said, if that's what they want, 
we'll go ahead and give that to them. That's such a loving God, you know. What ruler would step aside and say, okay, the people want this, I'll give them that. Um, you know, God still had a plan in place with the use of a king, but it wasn't his you know, plan A. The plan A was God to be ruler over the people and to have judges appointed. But God condescended. He, um, he agreed to their plan, even though he knew it wasn't in their best interest. And so Paul's on this, or Paul, I'm going to say that repeatedly because every time I think of Saul, I think of Paul. So I'll try to keep this straight. But uh, so Saul is on the scene now. And we can see that the first time we see him here, he's looking for his father's donkeys. So the donkeys have gotten lost. Saul and one of his servants go out to look for them. And then his servant has this idea because they just can't find these donkeys. He says, uh, you know, there's a, a prophet of God who's here. Maybe we can ask him and he can tell us where the donkeys are. So Saul thinks that's a great idea. They go and find Samuel. And God had warned, or not warned, he had alerted Samuel the day before that somebody from the tribe of Benjamin would be coming and that uh, this man would be the new king. This is going to be the guy that they're going to um, anoint king over Israel. This is the guy that God had chosen. And so Samuel, not knowing this, he and his servant go up, I'm sorry, Saul, not knowing this, he and his servant go up to Samuel and ask about the donkeys. And then Samuel sees this guy fits the picture. And let's go to verse 19 of chapter 9. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? What was the desire of Israel at this time? To have a king, yeah. On whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it, not on, uh, is it not on you and on all your father's house? So obviously this took him by surprise. We see in verse 21, and, Sam, and Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Man, is that humility coming from Saul? You know, just like I said, we think about Saul though in the Old Testament and, you know, we think about all these negative things, but look at this guy. I mean, he can't believe it's him because, I mean, he's got the humility that says, why me? I'm nothing. And it's interesting too because we kind of see that replayed in a few more instances here. Um, but we'll get to that in a second, but, you know, he... You know, he questions, why me? But then Samuel confirms it to him. Um, in chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul. He does this privately. He actually uh, excuses Saul's servant. And then Samuel anoints Saul and kind of gives him a little prophecy about what's going to happen as he heads back home. He tells him that he's going to run into some prophets uh, of God and that he's going to end up prophesying as well. And let's go to... Verse 6 of chapter 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Let's skip ahead now to verse 9. So it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, 
that God gave him another heart. And in the margins, another translation, God changed his heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. So you look at Saul and you see he's actually an example of this new birth experience. Isn't that kind of crazy? Just thinking this, this is the Saul that we're talking about that, you know, has a significant decline. But at one point here, he goes through this new birth experience. He's one of these Old Testament examples of this process. Is this something that God does without our uh, will, you know, without our choice? Is this something that God just does randomly? Okay, you get this. Or is it something that really Saul has to accept? Is it something that he has to really humble himself to receive as this new heart? Right? I mean, God doesn't just throw it at you and say, okay, take it, whether you want it or not. But, I mean, it really takes this humility. It really takes this acceptance of, you know, lowering ourselves and accepting God's will for us. And we can really see Saul is... uh, with this new heart experience, he's kind of example of what Ezekiel was talking about, Ezekiel 36, uh, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. I mean, it looks like that's exactly what was going on here. I mean, that's what is described. You know, kind of a New Testament statement, 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I mean, Saul's this new creation, filled with the Holy Spirit, given a new heart. I mean, he even prophesies. That's not something he's doing on his own. That's something that the Spirit of God is doing within him. And if we go back down a little bit to verse 14, Saul runs into his uncle. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? So he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. So his uncle's very interested right now. And Saul's uncle said, tell me, please, what did Samuel, uh, what Samuel said to you? So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. I mean, that's very interesting to me too. Just, you know, we saw an example of Saul's humility. This isn't something he's bragging about. This isn't something that he's even mentioning to his own uncle here. He doesn't say a word about it. You know, I think we're getting a lot of glimpses of the character of Saul at this time. And then we're getting, you know, more and more evidence of why God chose him. And so Samuel gathers Israel together and is going to proclaim the king to all the people. And so again, he gives them a warning about what this king is going to do and how this is not God's plan. He gives them the warning. He does that repeatedly. Um, And then Samuel starts choosing tribes. Verse 20, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri, Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, they could, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So that's really interesting to me, too, that 
So Saul knows exactly what's going to happen here. Samuel's made it very clear that he's going to be king. You know, Samuel's choosing and kind of narrowing this from family to, you know, immediate family and then to Saul himself. And then, you know, Saul's hiding. So again, I, you know, such a huge example of humility and the fact that it just appears that he doesn't feel worthy for this. And I'm just, I'm just really impressed because for some reason, I think I missed some of this, uh, just, you know, hearing through the stories. But really, at this point, I don't see a huge question of why God would have chosen this man. I mean, we see a lot of reflection of what we saw in Moses when God had told him to deliver, you know, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses didn't feel worthy. Moses kept trying to back away from it, just as it seems like Paul is too, or Saul. See, there we go. See, same as Saul is too. He doesn't feel worthy for this. And that's probably a big part of why he was chosen. You know, I think this is such a good example of, you know, we sometimes look, look at things in hindsight and we, you know, we know that God sees everything. He knew what was going to happen here. But he also knew what was going to happen when he created humanity. Uh, but throughout all this process, because he's the God of love, he continues to allow us free will. You know, he allowed Adam and Eve free will to choose him or reject him. He raised Saul up because, from what we can see, he was the best man for the job here. But he continued to give Saul the free will to continue to rely on him for strength or to start relying on himself, which is obviously what we see later on. So to me, this is also a big warning to us, too, because a lot of times I think we think about this new birth experience as being, you know, okay, I'm done. I'm on the right track. I cannot veer off. God is with me. And yes, that's true as long as we remain submitted to the will of God. But as soon as we start to raise ourselves up, as soon as we start to focus on self, you know, even after we've had this experience, we can veer off track. There's no once saved, always saved. There's only continual dependence, continual reliance on God. So this is where I think Saul starts to shine a bit. Oh, and before we go to that, uh, after Saul is chosen, proclaimed as king, there's some naysayers here. And I guess if you see your king hiding in the equipment, maybe, you know, maybe you understand that a little bit, but there's some naysayers. Uh, Verse 27, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So then we see the story in verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. So this guy was a pretty nasty guy. Um, we see that the, the Israelites here in the city were terrified of him. They even tried to make a covenant with him. And he said, okay, I'll make a covenant with you on the condition that you come out and we pluck out all your right eyes. That sounds appealing, right? Make a covenant with you, but you're going to lose an eyeball. And so, you know, apparently he allows them the seven days for them to send out messengers and see if anyone will save them. And they say, if nobody comes, we'll come out to you and do as you will. So they send the messengers out and then Saul hears about this. Then verse six, then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and that his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. 
And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. To me, this is very different from kind of the picture we got in the previous chapter. Saul seems like, you know, maybe humble and maybe the type of guy who wouldn't really, you know, go to that extreme. But, you know, again, this is the spirit of God arousing him, this this godly anger. Um, And because of this, you know, the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent or one accord. And he got so many people, they go out to the city and they're able to overcome the Ammonites. And we're told in verse 11, uh, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So this is a complete obliteration, right? I mean, you know, there's survivors here, but it seems completely one-sided, as it should. I mean, if God is on the side of the Israelites here and they're against a, you know, a heathen nation, it should seem one-sided because the power of God overwhelmingly should overcome these obstacles. And that's what happens. And then remember the naysayers that we had when Saul was proclaimed king? Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. So again, humility from this man. Who gets the glory here? Yeah, God's getting the glory. I mean, Saul doesn't bring any of that to himself. He's saying this is God. He doesn't even, you know, seek vengeance over the guys who didn't want him to be king. He lets that go. You know, he's so happy about the power that God demonstrated in his people, and he gives him all the glory for this. So to me, this is kind of the high point of Saul's reign. You know, the coronation hasn't even happened yet, but this just seems like such a high point. If the story of Saul ended here, he would have to be one of the heroes of faith that we talk about. Right? I mean, this is such, you know, such a good depiction of the power of God to work in the life of, you know, a man or woman. So this seems like a very, very high point here. So I want to, I want to break away from the story a little bit and just talk about how this relates to us. Now, specifically, I want to talk about how this relates to us as a church. Who's been going to this church for more than 10 years? I'm trying not to look at Arith, but uh, can you raise your hands? Okay, so we actually have a fair number of people. Most are on this side, so this is where the new people come. All right, so 20 years? Anybody more than 20 years? Okay. Yeah, 30 years. Okay, we'll, we'll let that slide, 29. <laughs> so 30, 40 years. Oh, man, so we got two hands right now. So fi- just curious, 50 years? All right, so I guess we're down to one now. <laughs> so, yeah, going to a church, 50 years. Um, you know, obviously, during that time frame, I'm sure that you've seen high points in this church, right? Uh, you know, you don't have to be going somewhere 50 years to see high points. But, you know, during that time, I'm sure there have been a lot of highs and lows. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the peak that I see Saul at here and, and uh, his reign, you know, have we had those peaks here in this church? I'm sure we have. You know, Marissa and I have been here eight years, I think. Yeah, so we've been married nine years, and I think we came here after our first year. 
Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously the time that we came here, you know, couldn't find a place to sit very easily. Um, I remember a lot of ministries going on as well. Uh, there was a cooking class that I'm pretty sure was going on at that time. Uh, I remember that I think it was Hope, who was one of the health ministers, had actually asked me to give a health talk, and one of my instructors, too. And uh, that was like the first time I'd really given a, I don't know, maybe one of the first times I'd given a public speech, and it freaked me out. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think we had a lot of stuff going on at that time. Obviously, we had the yearly evangelistic seminars, the meetings that we would do. Um, I remember that we had done the the health uh, dental, dental expos over at the community center. We did that for a few years, too. I mean, there have been some high points in this church, even in the eight years that we've been here, Marissa and I, and I'm sure going back even farther than that, you could probably cite a ton of other examples of that, too. So, you know, here's a high point in Saul's reign, and here's, you know, some high points that we're kind of citing in in our church. But as we know, it doesn't always stay there. We'll come back to this. So, going forward in our story, chapter 20, Saul's coronation. So, this is kind of the official coronation of Saul as king. And Samuel goes through a a whole history of Israel, of the deliverance from Egypt, of um, some of the judges, some of the uh, deliverers that God had raised up when his people turned from him, got overtaken by some of the other nations, and deliverers were raised to bring them out. And then, you know, again, he mentions that the king is not God's ideal. And it goes so far that uh, during this coronation, because of God's displeasure with them asking for a king, there's a, a storm, and we're talking about there was thunder, rain. Uh, it's time for the wheat harvest. I imagine a lot of that was ruined because of the weather, because of the displeasure of God that was on display here at the coronation. But again, despite all that, verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. You know, despite this, despite that you're asking for the wrong thing, I'm still going to be with you as long as you remain faithful to me. Verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. He doesn't leave any room to, you know, to think about who's truly in charge still. You can ask for a king, but this is still God's people. So we're going to get to one of the low moments here. Chapter 13 is titled Saul's Unlawful Sacrifice. So at this point, it's been a couple of years. Saul chooses, uh, it says 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul, and then 1,000 were with his son Jonathan. And Jonathan attacks a garrison of the Philistines, The Philistines don't appreciate that, so they retaliate. Verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. So that's just the chariots and horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. 
And they came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of Beth-Avon. That's a lot of people, right? Right? That is would be absolutely terrifying. Um, and we see that was absolutely the case. Verse 6, When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So Israel is terrified, absolutely terrified. And when we look at this from, you know, a humanly perspective, they have every reason to be, right? I mean, this is an army that you can't even count. People as the sandwiches on the seashore. And just, you know, 30,000 chariots. Saul had 3,000 people with him. This is 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, not to mention all the people. So, you know, from a human perspective, they have no chance. So when, when Samuel had spoken to Saul initially, uh, he had warned him or, or told him what was going to happen here. I'll just read it. It's a few chapters back in 10, verse uh, 8. Samuel had told him, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So Samuel told him, I'm going to come down. I'm going to offer these burnt offerings, make sacrifices. I'll do this. Just wait the seven days and I'll come, and then I'll show you what you're supposed to do. So Saul waits, and then Samuel doesn't come when he expects him. Saul gets impatient, and he offers the burnt offerings himself. And it seems like right after he did that, Samuel shows up. Verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that I did and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then Samuel leaves. He was supposed to give them instruction, right? That's what he told him. Instead, he chastised Saul for not following the commandment of God that he had given Saul through Samuel in offering the sacrifices himself. And then he told that God will seek somebody else and that your kingdom will not continue. And then Samuel leaves. So, you know, put yourself in that, that position. This was your only hope, right? Because you're outmatched. You have zero chance against this army. So obviously, there's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of hope among this, you know, this army that's there. And we're told it's 600. That's all that's left. 
600 people, 600 Israelite soldiers with Saul against this army is the sand which is on the seashore. You know, what's interesting too is you keep reading and uh, the only people in that army of Israel who had swords were Saul and Jonathan. Uh, you read that the, the uh, Philistines had actually made it so there's no blacksmith found in Israel. Uh, the Israelites had to go into the land of the Philistines to even sharpen their farm equipment. And it says that the only people that had the swords were Saul and Jonathan. Right, that puts that into perspective a little bit more, right? I'm sure the the Philistine army wasn't, you know, just, you know, men with their fists. I'm sure that they had, you know, some pretty heavy equipment too. So let's switch switch gears again. Let's, you know, cuz Saul is this is a low point, right? This is a hopeless position that he's in. There is zero chance of success in this from a human perspective. So when you read about this, uh you know, Saul's army, people scattering. I try not to think, but that sounds familiar, right? I mean, you think about where we were as a church a few years ago. Like I said, when we first got here, it's tough to find a seat, a pew to sit. And especially, you know, over the past few years, uh, I think that we've all noticed that we've been dwindling away a little bit, right? When we talked about highs in the history of the church, I'm sure that, you know, Ardeth Carroll. I'm sure you guys could even talk about a lot of the lows that our church has been through. And it's hard to argue that we're not in that position currently. I mean, you think about a lot of the ministries, even like I said myself, just thinking about some of the ministries that we had when Marissa and I got here. Do we have those now? I I really don't think we do. I mean, um, I could be wrong. The last thing I really remember, the last outreach type thing that we did was uh, what Gary had initiated as far as handing out the baskets to our neighbors. You know, and God bless Gary for, for doing that. But you think about, you know, other other outreach opportunities, other uh, evangelistic type campaigns, stuff like that. I don't honestly remember when the last one was. I know that we've done them, but I honestly can't remember. You think about the the role the role, the, you know, the Israelite army here, they're the army of God, right? They're the army of God's people. This is a heathen nation that's coming up against them. And you have to think that God's will for this Israelite army was to overcome these heathen, you know, this heathen army that's coming up against them. I mean, in that, they're glorifying God. You think about our commission as a church, right? It's, you know, to expand the territory of God. You know, we think about, uh, you know, flags for territories, the American flag. You think, like, on this territory of our church, there's, like, an invisible flag of Zion flying. You know, our responsibility as a church is to expand that territory. And that's really our commission. That's our reason for existence, at least one of the major ones. And you think, especially recently, don't we resemble this army a little bit? I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of the fact is the numbers for Israel, right? Unnumbered army against 600 scared men, right? They see that they're shorthanded and there's nothing that they can do based on numbers that's going to overcome this, this uh, you know, Philistine army. We're shorthanded, right? 
And I think we think about that, that numbers-wise, there's not a whole lot that we can do to make a significant impact in this city. Right? I mean, because we see who's here. We have some visitors, which, praise God, you guys are here. Um, We've got the regulars, right? And, uh, you know, you'd like to think every single person seated here is one of those people who, you know, is in full participation mode with evangelistic seminars, evangelistic opportunities, but that's not the case, is it? Yeah, so I mean, we think about numbers, the numbers are even a little less than what we see here today. So, that's, it's just kind of the position, just kind of the parallel that I see with Saul's position here and ours, you know? Not necessarily numbers-wise, do we have any real hope of making significant impact based on small, small numbers? But praise God, the story doesn't end there. So let's go back to the story. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father... And it looks like he didn't tell anybody else either. So he and his armor bearer are setting out to the Philistine garrison. So I I don't have any military training. Uh, I'm not a military strategist. This seems like a terrible idea, right? Um, you know, again, we're talking about an army I keep saying it, but as the sand which is on the seashore, you know, that's how many men they have. We have Jonathan and his armor bearer. One of them has a sword, at least. Maybe Jonathan had a couple of them to spare. But uh, we see two men that just, they just can't sit there. They just can't sit there and let God's name be disgraced. They just can't sit there and let this Philistine army oppose the army of God. Verse 6, then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that uh, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. So not just Jonathan, but I mean, look at this armor bearer. You know, uh, the more popular story is David and Goliath, right? Which, not to take anything away from David, obviously that was, you know, unparalleled faith, but, uh, you know, that was one giant. Look at this. This is two men, and this is, you know, a large army on the other side. And it's interesting because... Obviously, Jonathan wouldn't have done this from a military perspective, like we said. I mean, this makes zero sense, absolutely no sense whatsoever. From a military perspective, he's going to die. He and his armor bearer are going to die. They're going to be ridiculed as, you know, absolutely, you know, I don't know, fools for doing this. And then Saul's family name is going to be disgraced because they, you know, completely don't know what they're doing. That's from a human perspective. But we can clearly see that Jonathan knew his God and he knew him intimately. He knew who he served. We look at what he did. There were, only, there were two things that he was sure of. 
One was he was sure that he served a powerful God. He knew that he served the almighty God of the universe. And he knew that it was God's will that this army of Israelites, of God's people, it was God's will that they overcome this Philistine army. He knew that without a shadow of a doubt. The only question that we can see that Jonathan had was the method by which this would be accomplished. Because we look and he asked for a sign. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, or if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So Jonathan knew what the ultimate, ultimate outcome of this battle of what God wanted was, like I said, God's people to overcome the Philistine army. But he just wanted confirmation on the method. You know, is this how you want me to do it, God? If so, grant me this sign. And we see that that's exactly what happens. The Philistines essentially taunt them, tell them, come up and we'll show you something. So Jonathan, verse 13, and Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp in the field and among all the people. And the garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. So I don't care how you know great of a warrior Jonathan and his armor bearer are. Again, they don't stand a chance. I mean, absolutely, uh, if he was like top-of-the-line warrior, I'm sure he would take a fair number of men with him. But... To create such a slaughter, to create such you know, a one-sided fight that the other army is terrified? Does that make any sense? I mean, two men, again, are creating pure terror in this. And again, not just them, but we see what's happening here too. And the earth quaked. There's an earthquake. And this isn't just because of trembling men. This is, when we read Spirit of Prophecy, this is actually the army of God, the angelic hosts that are creating this degree of trembling on the ground, this degree of earthquake, because this isn't just Jonathan and his armor bearer fighting. This is God's angelic army fighting alongside with him. And that's creating great terror within this army, this uh, Philistine army. You know, and it's to such a degree that Saul and the Israelite army are noticing what's going on. And they can see that it's just getting greater and greater. This noise, this terror, this sound coming from the Philistine army is just getting higher and higher. It's getting worse and worse. And so they, you know, look at who's all left in the camp and they notice that Jonathan and the armor bearer are missing. And so again, as this, this fight continues to intensify, there's a little courage built up in Saul and in these men, and they decide to join the fight. Verse 20, Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword, I thought we said they didn't have a sword, I don't know, was against his neighbor. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, that was the Philistines. Their swords were against each other, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines 
before that time who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So it's interesting. It took two men of immense faith. It took two men to really rouse the courage of this army. And as this army saw that God was with them, as they saw that, you know, the power of God was on pure display here, they got the courage to join the fight. Because they knew that this wasn't just about numbers. This was about the God that they served. And the people that had fled, they start joining this Hebrew uh, army again. And they pick up the fight. And again, verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. So you know, a, a lot of times, I think we get focused on the, the, you know, the physical circumstances, right? I mean, we shouldn't be running a church like you run a company, right? There shouldn't be the same strategies behind it. There shouldn't be the same logic behind it either. If that was the case, this Israelite army wouldn't have budged or they would have just fled, you know? Because there's no logic that says that Jonathan should have gone out there with his armor bearer. That was just faith. You know, you think about Elisha and Dothan, the Assyrian army surrounding him. He doesn't flinch, but his servant is terrified. But why doesn't Elisha flinch? It's because there's an army of God surrounding him. So why would he be afraid? You know, why would Jonathan be afraid? He doesn't seem to flinch at all. He knows who he serves, and he knows that the God that he serves will be with him, and he confirms the method by which God wanted him to, uh, to battle. And once that's confirmed, again, he's on his hands and knees crawling to get to this army. So how does that relate to us? You know, I, I don't have a strategy or anything. I, that's not what I did. I, I have enough trouble coming up with a sermon. Uh, God doesn't have much to work with with me. So, But, you know, I just look at this and, you know, let's not focus on what we see. You know, there's no amount of strategy based on what we have right now that's going to cause us to make any significant impact in Midland. There's no amount of strategy because we don't have a very big group. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, there was a reason why Gideon only had 300. And I think there's a reason why God had Saul's army wait. You know, you see people fleeing and I think it gets to a point that God's like, all right, now clearly this is going to be me on display and not you. And I think we're at that point that clearly this is going to be God on display and not us. But it just takes that, that Jonathan of faith, you know, somebody who steps out and says, I'm going to step forward in faith. This makes zero sense, zero sense. But I'm going to step forward in faith knowing that I serve the God who will make this happen because this is his will. You know, you wonder, why did Jonathan not say anything when he left the camp? He didn't tell anybody what he was doing except his armor bearer. You know, why didn't he do that? 
And I think it's because the well-intentioned people of God would have dissuaded him, right? Because the well-intentioned people of God would have told him, buddy, you're going to die. You have zero chance. You are, you know, right up your last will and testament. So, you know, like I said, I don't have any great answers, but I think that it's just a change in perspective. I think it's a change in uh, sight from looking at the physical to looking at the spiritual and being able, like Jonathan, especially like Elisha, to say, you know, look at this army around us. This isn't our work. This is God's work. And I think that's one of the big ways that, you know, these secular powers take notice. You look at the story of Israel, of the deliverance from Egypt, you look at all the miracles that took place, you look at the battles of Israel overcoming these Canaanite armies, um, they took note of that, right? There was a terror amongst the, uh, the Canaanite nations because of this God of Israel, right? I mean, to such a degree that they wanted to join, right? What happened to Rahab, right? I mean, she joined Israel. Uh, Uriah the Hittite, you know, where was he? You know, he was one of David's faithful, you know, commanders. You know, you think of Ruth. I mean, I don't know all the names of the people, but, and those are just the recorded ones. But I think that's one of the big ways that God catches the attention of others is by putting his power on full display and having a people that allow him to do that. And that's not with strategy. That's not with, you know, physical logic. That's with pure surrender to God. And that's with goals that exceed our capabilities. So that's just something I wanted us to think about. I wanted us to pray about. Because again, I think that with smaller numbers, there's also larger opportunities because as the numbers diminish, the power of God is on full display when we make a big impact for him, you know, when we step out in faith. So I think the question is just, do we have any Jonathans, you know? Are there any Jonathans amongst us? Any, any armor bearers amongst us? Anybody that can step out in faith knowing that God's going to be with them? Because we can see from the story, when that happens, when we start seeing that God is working powerfully in even a few individuals, other people join in. So that's just what I want to leave us with. Are there any Jonathans? You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.